0: Welcome to the Semper Reformator Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Well, we've spent a good wee while in Acts chapter 16, and it's time to move on. For Paul and Silas and Timothy have left Philippi following the shameful events there in which Paul and Silas were falsely and wrongfully arrested and humiliated and beaten and imprisoned without trial. And they have traveled down through Macedonia to the town of Thessalonica. And we recall that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the first verses of the first couple of verses of the chapter for you yourselves brethren know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated as you know at Philippi we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God obviously Paul's treatment at Philippi hadn't put him off in the slightest, even after suffering humiliation and having a harsh beating and being wrongfully imprisoned, Paul is not deterred in any way from proclaiming the gospel. He is bold in God to bring the message of the gospel to Thessalonica. So we're going to look at this very short passage, just four verses, I think, this evening. I want to see the object of Paul's work. And I want you to be very careful to notice the orderly fashion in which Paul goes about his work, the orderliness of it. And then, of course, in verse 4, the outcome of God's work. It's very simple, isn't it? The object and the orderliness and the outcome. The object of Paul's work when they had passed through Amphipolis or Amphipolis or whatever way you want to pronounce that, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, I want you to see that Paul's primary object here, of course, is a spiritual one. That's always Paul's primary aim, to bring sinners to faith in Christ, to preach the cross. Every sermon that we preach, we don't always achieve this, But every sermon that we preach ought to at some point reach the cross. It ought to be a case that we preach Christ crucified and nothing else. Paul begins his mission at Thessalonica in his usual manner. He goes to the synagogue of the Jews. That's maybe a good reason why he passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia because there were no synagogues or Jewish worship in those two times. And he, as his custom, was attended to the Sabbath worship of the Jews. He was a Jew. And he was entitled to go to the synagogue. And, of course, in Psalm 84 and verse 10, we remember that it tells us that a day in your courts is better than a thousand. And it's good to come together, isn't it? And it's good to come to the house of the Lord as a great blessing in meeting with the people of God. And here we are together this evening, uh, meeting in this manner again. Paul went to the Jewish synagogue. And of course there, as we know, and as we have learned over the past few weeks, as a learned rabbi, he would be given opportunity to speak. And when given the opportunity to speak, Paul always speaks about Jesus, doesn't he? Thinking out loud, though, I wonder when a new church was formed in the town. Uh, in the town of Thessalonica, in the town of Philippi, in the, in the town of Corinth a little bit later on, where Paul begins his mission with the Jewish synagogue. I wonder then when the church begins to meet on the Lord's Day, do, does he still go to the Jewish synagogue? Well, maybe the question is academic, because... Usually by that time the Jews are so enraged, so angry, that they would probably have harmed him. So Paul's mission is always strategic. The object of his work is spiritual. It's always spiritual. That's primary. I'm sort of given something away there. Because I wanted to say to you today that it's not only a spiritual objective, but it's a very strategic objective. Now, sometimes, years ago, somebody said to me about a certain preacher, he's very good, but he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly use. Have you ever heard that? Paul is strategic in his thinking. We cannot be so spiritual that we don't plan how we do our outreach and how we reach others in our community, and how we bring others to Christ. You know, there would be a tendency sometimes for us as Reformed believers to sit back and to say to ourselves, the Lord will save whom he will. That's true. God is sovereign in salvation. That's true. The Lord has his elect. There's a wonderful example of that when we come to Corinth. That'll not be for a while. But you know, we don't have to do anything. All that we have to do here is sit in our seats and worship and preach the word of God and God will save his people. Now in a sense that is true of course. But we are required to do evangelism. We are required to be strategic and to reach out to our, to our surrounding areas. To go out into the world and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Paul's mission is strategic. He came to Thessalonica. That's not haphazard. That didn't happen by chance. Paul is thinking here very logically. His mission strategy is well thought out. His destination here, Thessalonica, is a good hundred miles walk from Philippi where he has been going to have to walk to get there. It's going to be a long journey. And he's passed two other towns. But you see, Thessalonica is an important city. Thessalonica is the capital city of the Roman province of Macedonia. Thessalonica is the largest city in the region. And of course, one of the things, as you'll probably know, one of the things that the Roman Empire was seriously famous for is building roads. We could have done with some of their technology here. You know, the way our roads are full of potholes. The Romans built fantastic roads. Well-kept roads. Well-maintained roads. Well-policed roads. You could travel right across the Roman Empire. And the road between Greece And what we call the Holy Land was the Ignatian Way. And believe it or not, the Ignatian Way was the main street of Thessalonica. It ran straight through the town, this big, well-kept Roman road. So think of the strategy Paul's developing here. A new church in Thessalonica is a strategic asset right on the main road from Jerusalem to Rome. Because all roads in the Roman Empire led to Rome. A strategic center that would spread the gospel, coming from the east, coming from the land of Christ, the land of the apostles, and spreading it right across Europe. Last week, we saw the very first Christian church in Europe being formed at Philippi. But Paul's thinking strategically. He's saying the gospel must proceed further into this lost continent. And to do that, it's got to go to Thessalonica. The church in Thessalonica is strategic. So you see, we have a spiritual objective, haven't we? We have a spiritual mission. As a church, we want to reach out for lost souls. We want to bring people into the kingdom of God. We want to proclaim the gospel loud and clear. But it's not enough for us as Christians to say, we'll let the Lord do that and we will just sit back because God saves his elect. He does. But he wants us. Great commission commands us to be strategic thinkers like Paul was and to go out into all the world to think about our, how we're going to reach our lost friends and neighbours with the gospel. The object of Paul's work was both spiritual and strategic. Let's look at the orderliness of Paul's work here to see something about Paul's methods. and In particular, I want you to notice three aspects of his teaching ministry at Thessalonica and if you intend to have a preaching ministry this would be good it's comprised of three things it's comprised of reasoning and it's comprised of explaining and it's comprised of persuading let me try and develop that a little bit. So Paul's preaching ministry, his evangelistic ministry, starts off with reasoning. Look at verse 2. And Paul, as his manner was, went in on them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Now, I want you to notice the combination here of reasoning and the Scriptures. Do you see that? He's reasoning with them out of the Scriptures. See the combination of the biblical foundation and the logical, well-thought-out presentation of God's truth. In years gone by, we used to call this systematic theology. Now, if you can find a college anywhere in Northern Ireland that's doing systematic theology at the minute, well, there must be one or two, not too many. Modern college is teaching it. One college lecturer told me a while back, we don't do it anymore because queens don't want it. I was at an evangelical college. We don't do it anymore because it's not on the queen's curriculum. What did you replace it with? We replaced it with something called biblical theology. Right. So you don't have to think it through anymore. Reasoning with them out of the scriptures. We don't seem to want to do that anymore. Sure we don't. Now read First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 with me. You should be keeping your hand. Because I'm going to go backwards and forwards here. So you want to be keeping your hand in... Uh, First Thessalonians. Now, look at First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. For this cause also, thank we God, without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it. Now, this is important. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now think about that in conjunction with what Paul did in the book of Acts, in chapter 17. Because he's reasoning with them out of the scriptures, and yet he's telling them here at that very same time when he was doing that, that they were receiving it not as the word of men, So his reasoning out of the Scriptures was systematic theology. It was bringing a balanced view of the Scriptures to them. It was directly rooted and grounded in the foundation of God's Word and not purely in human wisdom. So while biblical exegesis and preaching should start with the Scriptures, And it should always involve a reasoned explanation. Human reason is not the primary purpose that we do this sort of thing. Down where I spent my Lord's Day mornings in County Down, around just a mile or so from us, is a massive big church. They call themselves the non-subscribing Presbyterians. And if you were there normally during the Lord's Day morning, it would be packed with people. Of course, it's not at the minute because they're, they've taken three months off. But um, if you were to go down there normally, it's packed with people. It's a huge church. And they call themselves that because they don't subscribe to any confession of faith. Now, that in itself would not make them a whole lot different from many modern evangelicals. There's lots of evangelical churches you can go into today and they won't subscribe to any standard of faith. But the non-subscribing Presbyterians are so liberal that they will not accept the final authority or inspiration of the Bible as the Word of God. So when I was ministering in East Belfast, there was a leaflet came round the doors. Inviting you to the, one of their local churches, who had said, Come to our church where you can believe what you want. You know. And in their church in Belfast, if you drive past it, one of them, you will see a sign outside the door faith guided by human reason. Now, hold on. Human reason comes from the human heart. And the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And who can know it? Faith is not guided by our fallen human reasoning. Faith comes from hearing, says the Bible, and hearing from the word of God. When we preach and proclaim the word of God, we build on what we are reading. We build on it by learning the basics of biblical hermeneutics. We, le- we, we study the scriptures in context. We learn about genres of literature. We learn about biblical history. Maybe we perhaps even practice a small smattering of the original languages. But those things are always secondary to the work of the Holy Spirit, who applies the Word of God to our hearts and who opens our minds to the understanding of God's word. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 that they did not receive it as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh in you that believe. The word of God works in you. If you stand up in a pulpit and preach just human reason what you think You're going to end up with a congregation who don't know what they believe and have no uh, level of godliness whatsoever, no inclination to follow the Lord. Being sensible. Reasoning from the word does not exclude the guidance that is obtained through the work of the Holy Spirit. Matthew, Henry. The preaching of the gospel should be both scriptural preaching and rational preaching. Such Paul's was. For he reasoned out of the scriptures. Reason must not be set up in competition with the scriptures, says Matthew Henry. That's what the non-subscribing Presbyterians do. But it must be made use of in explaining and applying the scriptures. That's what we seek to do. Now, how did Paul practically do that? Well, his methods here are very simple. He reasoned with them. That would simply mean that he engaged in discussion and in debate with them. That's typical for a rabbi. A rabbi, as you know, uses preaching in a sense of proclamation, but they also engage in teaching, they settle down their pupils around them, and they take questions in what has become known to us as a form of catechesis. And that's a form of Christian instruction that nowadays we sadly neglect. I was always. Frustrated at the idea of pastoral visitation. I do it, and I, and I do it to the best of my ability. But, you know, in years gone by, I wonder how many years, hours of pastoral visitation were wasted in my life. Because you go into the house, and the person in the house talks about the weather, and the family, and the church, And before you go, I'll make you a wee cup of tea. Well, frankly speaking, I don't want your tea. I don't even like stuff. How about planning the visit? How about saying to the person, I'm going to visit you on Tuesday? Try this in a minute. Trying to try it for ages. So I'm going to visit you on Tuesday morning. I'll be at your house about half ten or so. Now we're going to talk about Heidelberg Catechism, question one. Would you mind reading it before I come? And then when we come, we'll chat about it for a while, and you can ask me any questions, and we'll read the scriptures, and then when we've finally brought all that discussion to an end, we'll come with it all before the Lord in prayer. How's about that? For a practical, instructive, pastoral visit, instead of sitting talking about how well the cows are milking He engaged with them in discussion. And his sources were always the scriptures. Goodness me, look at the time. The scriptures, not philosophy or human wisdom. I'm not going to go any further into that. We're running out of time. Reasoning. The second part of his orderly presentation is what's written here in the authorized version as opening and alleging. Um, Another way to put that might be explaining and demonstrating. Explaining. Do you know, um, for a preacher, I say this to those of you who are aspiring to be preachers, for a preacher it's important to explain in such a way that people understand. Do you ever reach the end of a sermon and the preacher says, and now in conclusion and you look at your watch and say, goodness me, it's an hour, where has that gone? One of the men who can do that best is Stuart Olliot. I listened to Stuart Olliot one day preaching for an hour, and when he sat down, I looked up and watched and thought, my goodness, I did. where's that went? You realise you've been listening to a sermon for 40 or 45 or 50 minutes, and you haven't even noticed the time going by, and that's great. Sadly, it doesn't often happen that way. But, you know, often the easiest sermons to listen to are the ones are the, that are the easiest understood. The ones where the explanation of the text is so plain and simple that anyone can understand it. The preacher's aim is to explain, to open an, opening and alleging, opening the word of God, explaining it in such a way that everyone can understand Okay, so the orderliness of Paul's word, he's reasoning, he's explaining, and thirdly, he's persuading. Look at verse 4. Some of them believe, Now, I'm not going to get into the Greek text here too much, because there's probably people that know it more than me, but there's a slight there's different ways you can translate the word that's, Used here, and it could be persuading or it can be believing. It's not important. What is important is that our preaching has to be persuasive so that people will believe. Back in the 1980s, I was rebuked again by one of the elders in the church. So he called me one, to the side one day before a meeting to complain about my preaching. Many people had done it before and many people have done it since. But this one complaint was probably the most stinging complaint that I've ever had in a good sense. For he said to me, Brother, can I have a wee word with you? I want to talk to you about your preaching. And he says, it's well researched and you've prepared it very well. But please, it's far too clinical. I hadn't even thought about that. I don't know what I must have been doing. I must have been preaching sermons like as if I was giving a lecture and I promised to improve. It's essential when we preach Christ that we do it persuasively. We endeavor to cause men to abandon their sinful ways. We want to be persuasive for them so that we will persuade them to repent of their sin and to trust the Lord. We can have our methodology right. We can have our hermeneutical techniques all well researched and presented. We can have our demonstration of the person and the work of Christ very clearly presented. But what is the point if it's nothing more than academic knowledge and rhetorical skills? Because we preach to persuade men and women to turn from their sins and to trust the Lord. We preach, as Richard Baxter said, as dying men to dying men. See the orderliness in which Paul approaches his work? He reasons, he explains, he demonstrates, he does it persuasively. And people believe. Lastly, the outcome of Paul's work. A great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So Paul's methods have a very positive result. The God-fearers who attended the temple, those who proselytites and people who were Gentiles and were seeking a better way for their life would have been at the temple. And that day they heard the good news. They followed the Lord. A number of the leading women followed the Lord. In the first epistle to the church, Paul himself tells us what this involves in First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. Again, we read, For remember, ye remember, brethren, our labour and travail, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. That's chapter 2 and verse 9. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Amazing conversion, repentance of sin. Turning from their ungodliness, believing in the finished work of Christ, First Thessalonians chapter two and verse thirteen. He received the word of God which he heard of us. He received it not of the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh in you that believe. They welcomed what Paul had preached, and Paul always preached the cross, and they resurrection and they believed and accepted that wonderful message repentance of sin believing in the finished work of Christ discipleship first Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11 as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children that he would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory and he even warned them about persecution. He even reminded them that the Christian path is not a, a cheap option. That it's not the easy way of life. That it's not just this business of your best life now. That when you come to Christ, you must take up your cross every day and follow Jesus, and that you will be persecuted. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14. For ye, brethren became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things. And rejoicing in all of that. First Thessalonians 2 and verse 19 to 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming for ye are our glory and joy. Paul's taking delight in their conversion. The outcome of Paul's work is the preaching of the gospel in all its fullness. The repentance of sin, believing in the finished work of Christ, discipleship, the warning that the Christian pathway will involve suffering and involve persecution and rejoicing at the end, knowing that there is a day when we will be with the Lord. So, the Lord's work in Thessalonica has begun. And sinners have been saved and they've been taught, and a new church is formed. Everywhere that Paul goes, this gospel message is so powerful that those who reject it will reject it violently. Because no one who is committed to the sinful ways of this world has any time for the gospel or for Christians or for Christ. Thessalonica is no different. Paul's preaching, and these conversions will bring trouble, as we'll see.